Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future. and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? What have you been up to? Uh, it's been going good, and I've been busy with lots of reading and uni work, but it's been nice uh, to be back and to be in person and to be having discussions with real people that I can... I was going to say I can touch, but I'm not not touching anyone. That's <laughs> a bit creepy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, same old, I feel. I feel yeah. like I don't have too much to add in terms of what I've been up to. I've just been working. I barely leave my apartment these days. And I just work and I spend my weekends doing laundry and like maybe watching something. But it's yeah. been like, I have no complaints though. Well, speaking of watching something. Yes, actually, we went to the movies earlier this week and we watched Here Out West in Denti, which is like, I heard of it earlier through a listener who told me about it because it's a film about Western Sydney. And I obviously grew up in Western Sydney and that is where my heart remains. So I was very excited to watch this movie. And then I heard it was really good and it premiered at Sydney Film Fest, I believe, which I yeah. missed. I remember wanting to watch it then and then I wasn't able to make it to the session, which is disappointing. I think it was the big opening film of the Sydney Film Fest. Yeah. It was re- well, I was really bummed about missing it, but we finally went and watched it and it was so good. Yeah, It really exceeded my expectations and I don't want to say that my expectations were low I heard it was really good but I think my expectations of Australian media in general are like not super high like I just don't expect to care because I'm so used to Australian media that has nothing to do with me it's all very white like I don't care and I don't usually feel things when I watch Australian stuff but this was different a lot of Australian stuff I'm a bit wary of because it can just be there's just something that feels Australian about it and just feels a bit jagged at the edges and can just feel a bit, you know, like it's not up to the level of some of the international exports of other countries. And I was really surprised and I'm almost like, sorry to, to be so surprised, but it was actually like a really, really good film. And especially because it was an anthology film, it really deals with like a multiplicity of different stories of different people from different backgrounds all sort of intersecting on like a, a few days in Western Sydney. And I'm not normally a big fan of anthology films, but this one I think really worked and I was a really, really big fan. Well, I have no preference whether a movie is an anthology film or not. I was just keen to like watch something that I actually related to. Yeah. And I feel like I got way more than that when I watched it. I was expecting to go in there and like, you know, understand the inside jokes about being ethnic or whatever, but it was actually like a really beautiful thoughtful well-made movie that like was really funny but also like a little bit sad very poignant I just loved it and I don't want to like say too much about it because I just want people to go and watch it like I don't want to talk too much about the plot but it's just like a really lovely movie and I think if you like the pod you should probably watch it I think you'd enjoy it I think it's still in cinemas for a little bit longer and just like support local movies that are about ethnic people yeah and since this film is so good hopefully we just start seeing more movies about here about this place in the world well that's the thing i think everybody kind of has a moral responsibility to go and watch here at west i'm saying that right now because we never get movies that tell like broad australian stories that aren't just like 
white Aussie battler type stories, which is why I've never given a fuck about Australian media because I've never really seen myself represented in it. And it's just really, really wonderful. Please watch it. By the way, it's really storming a lot outside. So if that comes through on the audio, uh, either we're sorry or you're welcome for the the nice little ambience. I was going to say, actually, this was planned all along. (laughs) Just like, you know, have like a cup of tea, listen to the storm behind us as we have a chat. It's a vibe. But um, anyway, moving on, let's get into today's follow-up. Yeah, so lately you and I have been watching this Netflix show that I'm sure many of you guys have heard of or seen, uh, Love is Blind, which I'm not normally a big fan of reality TV. I feel like I mostly uh, resist it. But yeah, I feel like Blown Away was your like one yes. reality TV that you watched. And yeah, was it. yeah, when it comes to like dating reality TV, I'm not normally a massive fan. But I've actually been been hooked on this one. I feel like it's me, it's me yeah. <laughs> being like to you, oh, well, like, we have like a spare hour. Maybe we can. Yes, you're the episode. one pushing us to watch it. We're not even that far in. I think we're only like five episodes. Yeah, into the second season. We haven't watched the first one. We just sort of picked it up on a whim. Well, we just clicked play and Netflix took us to season two. So we were like, okay. But the reason this is follow up and the reason I want to mention it is because not to spoil anything and also don't spoil it for us because uh, we're not fully caught up yet. But I just really wanted to mention it because on like, I think the fourth episode, it was just such a a good piece of reality TV. Like there were just all of these really relatable emotions and things just felt so real in the show. And you and I, after the episode, after like we just witnessed all of this really tension filled, problematic, but then also complicated issues, had a really good conversation for like the next hour about the way we feel about all these different contestants and what they did and what was right and what was wrong and what was problematic. And I just wanted to mention this in regards to our episode on celebrity gossip episode 45, where we talk about celebrity gossip, which I think is often really like dismissed as being sort of superficial and, and vapid and just completely unimportant. But we sort of put up a defense of celebrity gossip to say, and just, you know, this sort of stuff in general to say that this is actually sometimes a really important sort of discursive field where we negotiate social values with other people, where when we see a celebrity do something problematic in the media, We don't just say, oh, we shouldn't talk about that because celebrities are dumb and not worth talking about. But it's actually a place where we can figure out how you should and shouldn't act in society. And after watching this episode and why I'm such a big fan of Love is Blind is because I feel like nothing feels so over the top. I feel like when I watch a lot of uh, romantic reality TV and the reason I don't like it is because things I just like see people on screen and I'm like, I do not understand how your brain operates. Like this was just a, such a silly reaction. All the drama just feels so like empty. Whereas, and intense. Like there's drink yeah. throwing, calling people bitches. It's yeah. like, it's something that you could never, like you would never see someone do in real life. It's and just not drama we experience. The producers are like behind creating these situations and, good and the edit as well. Like you can't really trust what you see. And it's probably the same for Love is Blind, but just such a good piece of reality TV where we had such a, an interesting and I feel like very nuanced argument well not argument we had a really nuanced conversation about how we feel about all of the characters and i feel like you and i agreed on what was right and what was wrong and that was almost a way that we negotiated 
how we feel about that sort of behavior. Yeah, I think that something interesting about Love is Blind, because while it does have some mathsy type of drama, like people say some things and you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But it also has some really subtle explorations of emotion that is not typically seen, you know, with things like The Bachelor or like maths. So especially, I mean, I watch The Bachelor a lot. So I feel like that's, I haven't really watched maths ever. And that's a show that I don't really like for all the reasons. Yeah, well, like when, you know, someone gets like upset or like, Somebody says something mean on The Bachelor. They replay it like six times in the promo. You get your zoom in. You get your Bollywood like repeat scene. And it's really exaggerated. And something I find really interesting about Love is Blind is there are moments of tension or like people will like say like quite cruel things to each other or like whatever. And it'll gloss over it, but intentionally mm. because it actually leaves that with you. And it like put that in there because it knows you're going to watch it and be like, what the f- what the yeah. fuck did they just say? And then I'll just move on. But I don't think it's like making light of what that person says. I think it just doesn't spoon feed us. And it like lets us watch this show and come to our own conclusions and figure things out. Yeah, It's actually like seeing people in real life in a way, which mm. I find quite fascinating. And like there was an interaction, like Mitch and I were watching it together. And there was just a few things that one person said and it wasn't framed dramatically there was no like huge arising kind of drumbeat tension that you would get on like the bachelor or whatever you're just watching a conversation and we were just like oh my god and like gasping and we're looking at each other and we're like no no why did he say that oh my god that's not what she wants to hear and like but it was just so interesting because like this is something i could see my friends have a conversation about like yeah. i could i could witness my friend experiencing this at a party yeah some people on the show do things that are cruel, like things that are manipulative, things which are, you know, is bad behavior, but it's always sort of understandable. It, like sometimes when you watch things on The Bachelor and people do cruel things, they just seem completely evil and, yeah, and it's, unrelatable. It's, they really lean into the unhinged element of reality TV. Like these yeah. are just crazy women with no emotional regulation. Like that's kind of what The Bachelor especially loves and maths and stuff. But this is like people who you fully understand the thought process of. Even if you disagree with it, you're like, I can see exactly why you did that just now. And after watching the show, I feel more equipped to enter the social world. I feel like I've learned things. I've reflected not only on these characters, but myself. And that's just my little recommendation. And that's what good reality TV exactly, should do. Blind. Good reality TV should make you reflect on yourself and your relationships, which it did. I'm actually going to go rogue. Sorry, Mitch. I oh, just yeah. remembered a little bit of follow-up that I wanted to do that I forgot to put in a little doc. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I was talking on my Instagram today, which is Monday. We're recording on Monday, so you guys probably saw it. But I wanted to just make a note of it in the podcast. We did an episode a little while ago on journalism and fighting, like, the corporate brand machine. Journalism. Journalism. And just like having to fight, you know, like really messed up defamation laws and how it's like quite difficult to create good quality content under the current model of journalism. And I think that's become relevant yet again today because today a new story broke of an indigenous teenager. It seems he was killed by police. He died in a quote unquote collision with an unmarked police vehicle and the details are really murky. And by murky, I mean the police are making up all kinds of circumstances, but we can probably infer what happened. Yeah. But the reason I am bringing up this story, aside from the fact that it's obviously really fucked up and we should be talking about it because it's like yet another black death relating to police, is because of like some of the discourse I'm seeing regarding media. Because obviously like the media coverage around this is headlines like teen boy killed in car collision or teen boy killed in police collision but it's like neglecting to say that he was murdered or that it was intentional or that 
the police may or may not have rammed into him, which is some like things that I've seen other people say on social media. And there's been a lot of frustration, I think, from audiences being like, this is some white supremacist reporting, like y'all are not naming the issue and the issue is police. And while I wholeheartedly agree that the issue is police and we aren't naming the issue, I just want to remind people to remember that the journalists that are writing these articles are operating under like a white supremacist machine. Yes, they aren't saying those things because you're literally not allowed to in the media. Like you are not allowed to call the police murderers. (laughs) I can say it in my podcast. I can put it on an IG story. But like writing an article with a publication where you call those police murderers is not quite legal, especially when this case is under investigation and you can compromise the legal process, which is like, again, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just saying that's how the law works. Like people have gotten away with all kinds of heinous things because they just argue trial by media in their court case. Like people have gotten away with like murdering their wives and domestic violence because the moment the media says you're guilty, they argue that they can't get a fair trial and they get off. The media system is pretty fucked up. The law's actively muzzle you especially if you're like me and you want to write really radical anti-state anti-government and anti-police content and you're like I would love to say this but I can't publish this here because we will get sued and then I won't have a job and I think I just want people to like remember not to like direct all your anger and hate at the individual writer because if they're like me, you're doing the best you can out of a fuck situation. Like I'm lucky that I work under a boss who's like as left-leaning as I am. So I get away with a lot more, but like most media corporations are pretty white supremacists and they don't let you publish shit. And they certainly don't let you call like a state government or like the police, for example, murderers. Like you just are not allowed to do that. And I just want people to know that because like you're directing your frustration at the wrong group of people. So, in other words, don't at Sleeha. She doesn't want to hear it. Well, don't come for me (laughs) if I write an article about this saying this is what happened. Yeah. And I like my article, for example, you know, and like the Sydney Morning Herald article was also, I think, very good in this way. Both that article and my article talk about how like this is a police statement that the teenager, his name is Jai, Jai's family was given. Here's what's inconsistent about it. Here's what's looking pretty sus, especially given, you know, X, Y, Z, other things that have happened in the past with other people that have died in similar suspicious circumstances. That's literally the best we can do in this situation when there is an ongoing investigation and we're not allowed to like straight up just be like, oh yeah, the cops killed him. Even if that's what we think happened. Australian defamation law is rigged to fuck over ordinary people. And it is like weaponized by people with power. There are no protections for people like me. There are none. So while I'm pretty happy to put on my Instagram story and stuff like that, my publication is not going to let me like say something defamatory because I'm just not going to like, we're not going to win a court case. Truth is subjective. And when all of the people, all the fucking judges, all this white supremacist ruling class of Australia are in each other's pockets, truth doesn't matter. It doesn't. So let's just remember that like defamation law is more complicated than you think it is. And just because something is true doesn't mean you can't be sued for it. Anyway, let's introduce today's topic. So this episode is going to be about refugees, but maybe not in the way you think it's going to be about refugees. There's probably not a lot of new things I can say in regards to like the plight of refugees because I would just be preaching to the choir. I know all of you are pro-asylum seeker. Like we don't need to tell you that it's wrong to not give people, you know, asylum when they're escaping persecution. But I think there's been a really interesting 
kind of avenue of conversation around refugees that's opened up, at least for Mitch and I, quite recently. And that is the idea of refugee propaganda. So not necessarily what our government is doing to refugees, but what they're telling other people we're doing to refugees. Yeah, the way we talk about refugees and the way that people talk to us or the way that media portrays refugees, not to us, but to the refugees themselves. Yeah, and we don't just mean legacy media like news articles. We mean media in like the broadest sense. Media in terms of like art, media in terms of advertisements. Like media as what you would think of at university. We're using an umbrella term here. But yeah, we kind of just want to talk about the way our government has used media and this weird underbelly of advertising and refugee propaganda that I don't think the average Australian knows about. The Djokovic drama incited a short-lived, very short-lived, renewed interest in the plight of refugees in Australia in recent months. So just a quick recap, Djokovic was a tennis star that was detained Um, at the Australian border for apparently not having a valid visa. And he was placed into Park Hotel in Melbourne CBD, which is like the mandatory detention for people who come here without a valid visa. It's where currently maybe 35-ish of refugees and asylum seekers are imprisoned. And they've been there for For a long time. Eight or nine years, which is like, you know, a violation of a lot of human rights, but I'll get to that in a second. And while he was there for four days... There was this, like, media uproar. First, because there was this shock that, like, the Australian government would do that to somebody so famous. We know they do it to asylum seekers, but they're nobodies. How can they do this to somebody, you know, so famous? And then, furthermore, it kind of started to create conversations around the people actually in Park Hotel with Djokovic because... People were hoping that he would advocate for them and talk about their experiences. Because, I mean, this has been something that has been going on under our noses for so long now. And now there's actually, you know, a star that's been, you know, uh, related to this. Perhaps this can draw more attention onto this, you know, longstanding issue. Yeah. So, it was kind of a big deal in the media. And at the time, or actually slightly after, I interviewed two refugees that are currently imprisoned in Park Hotel. Their names are Mehdi Ali and Adnan Trapani, and both of them are 24 years old, and they've been uh, in detention, not on, not in Park Hotel for nine years, but they've been in detention for nine years because they came to Australia as asylum seekers on boats when they were 15. I spoke to them about a lot of things, but a key part of what we were talking about was their experiences in Melbourne's Park Hotel and also their feelings regarding the Australian public and like what they expect from us. And it was really heartbreaking and really illuminating. And some of the key points that I kind of wanted to bring up to start our episode today are the human rights abuses that they were experiencing, first of all, and then the Australian public's response to that. Because their stories are, like, fucking horrific. And not just what they experienced in offshore detention, but also what they're currently experiencing in Melbourne CBD. The experiences these refugees are having at Park Hotel are probably worse than you think. I think the most striking example of that is when Adnan told me that the food they are given is, like, rotting and has maggots in it, which is, like... Uh, it's also a bit symbolic, right? Like yeah. literally being served rotting food with maggots in it is just so symbolic of like how rotten to its core our government is. And he like showed me like tweets with like photos that they've taken of the food and it's like it's foul. Like it's actually so disgusting. And that this like he was telling me that there are days where people just don't eat because the food you're being given is not edible. 
and he was telling me so many things that we take for granted. Like he was saying they just don't have fresh air because all the windows are bolted down. So you're not allowed to open the window and you're obviously not allowed to leave the hotel. So you're just in like this like stale space with like barely any food, no form of like occupying yourself. When I asked him how he copes with like just that kind of monotonous life, he was telling me that he just, he doesn't <laughs> like, you know, like you can't even ask what it's like to cope because he's not coping. He was telling me that he's been diagnosed with PTSD and he's on antidepressants and he just kind of cycles through like sleeping and then like being awake, taking antidepressants and like disassociating while listening to music and then like going to sleep again. And that's his lifestyle. And something like, as we talked a little bit about temporality as well and just like how torturous monotony is. You know, torture doesn't have to be things like pulling nails out, like just making your existence as miserable and meaningless as possible is a form of torture because it makes you lose sight of what it is to be alive. And he like used nail clippers, which does like maybe sounds like an odd example, but it wasn't because he was trying to explain to me what it feels like to have no sense of stability ever, no sense of permanence, despite it being permanent. Like the only thing permanent about your existence is it maintaining its current state. He was explaining to me how they never get served food in plates. It's always in containers, like takeaway style. This, even just this idea of sitting down and having a meal like doesn't exist. And he used nail clippers when he was like, you know, even just things like, yeah, like cutting your nails, which you obviously have to do on a regular basis. Like you always have to ask for it. It always needs to be approved by the security guard who then brings it to you and then you use it and then immediately return it and then it gets put away again. Because even having amenities like that makes your place feel like home. And that's the last thing that our government wants these refugees to feel is like they can call this country home. The torture he's experiencing now is a slightly different type to what he was experiencing. On Nauru, it was, I think, a more visceral or more, like, aggressive form of torture. And this really... I mean, there was a lot. Like, there was a lot. I, I'll link the article. You guys can read it. But something that really stood out to me is when he was talking about, like, just how depressed everybody was and he spoke to me about you know like multiple friends of his dying by suicide and his own like self-harm attempts and he told me this story about a friend of his dying by suicide and apparently like the detention center guards placed his body into a freezer like fridge thing And they kept his mother and younger brother like three units away from the fridge. So it was like visible to them at all times. He was telling me like that was their way of like torturing you. It was like actually his exact words were they want to try and send a message. Even if you die, you aren't going to get to Australia. Like, even in death, you're not escaping this place. We're just going to, like, put your corpse in a freezer. And apparently that he was there for, like, a couple of weeks. That's some evil shit. It's some evil shit. And, I mean, he was telling me, like, Adan was like, you might not believe me. but And I was like, no, I I believe you. I think he's, like, used to people not being able to accept, like, the horrors of detention. Like, like, this sounds like, you know, like something you'd see in, like, some evil, like, gang movie. Yeah, like a horror movie. Yeah. There were other stories. And, like, he was just like, you know, I know that you might not believe me. And I was like, no, 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 no. I fucking, I believe every word you're saying. Like, I 100% Like, I totally get that because it does sound, like, conspiratorial in terms of, like, how evil can this government possibly be? And even just, like, sending me a message. Like, I can see how that would be portrayed as conspiratorial. But, like, that is literally 
That's the reality. That's reality. But not only is that reality, like, that is exactly what our government wants to happen. Like, they do want to traumatize these people. Because I imagine, like, your responses as listeners, if you haven't heard those kinds of stories, like the real kind of fucked up things that happen to asylum seekers in detention in Australia, you know, the response can be like, oh, my God, how can this happen? Like, how... Have we allowed this to happen? How can our government do this? This is just so outlandishly evil and scary. Like, this is so wild. We have to expose them. Like, maybe if we expose them, things will change. And I think that's not quite right because I think that's exactly what they want. I don't think exposing the government's atrocities towards refugees is, like, anti-state or, like, going to affect them negatively because they actively profit off the idea that they torture refugees like this is a propaganda model for them sure right it's not like we're uncovering something by revealing the fact that they're you know playing these psychological games torturing these people like they almost like they want us to know that yeah well they do because it's a deterrent right so there's this entire like underworld of Australian government propaganda, which is what we are going to get into today, that just extends beyond, like, the fear propaganda we experience as, like, Australian citizens or, like, people that live in Australia. You know, there's a specific subset of uh, propaganda that we are fed as civilians. But there is, like, an entire other world of propaganda that's aimed directly at asylum seekers, like, preventative, deterrent propaganda that none of us would really, like, know about because we're not asylum seekers. We're not the target demographic, so we just wouldn't They're not shown in Australia. They're not, yeah, directed towards Australian citizens. Yeah, and so this story of, like, Adnan and the fucked ways that governments are just... Our government was playing, like, psychological games on him and other asylum seekers to, like, show them how much, you know, you're never going to make Australia your home. You're never going to be welcome here. Like, that is shocking to us, but it's not. And not just that, like, we're not doing anything wild by, like, quote-unquote exposing it. It's not even a secret. We just don't know about it. I mean, even the reason that we're talking about this is because we came across some wild government anti-asylum seeker propaganda just recently, which you may have seen actually me share on Instagram like a week ago. So not that long ago, articles broke out of the Australian government partnering with the Sri Lankan government to host a short film festival, essentially, where they were doing like a competition for Sri Lankan, like up and coming filmmakers to submit like a three minute short film, you know, and they can win like a GoPro or like a camera or like whatever. Not even cash prizes, by the way, like equipment. Um, Yeah, one was like a drone, which I thought was sort of funny. Yeah, just like (laughs) (laughs) the government handing out drones, classic. Yeah. But like the objective of this short film was to create a three-minute video that exemplifies how much you can't make Australia your home if you're an asylum seeker. Yeah, why illegal migration would be, you know, the biggest mistake of your life. Which, first of all, illegal migration doesn't exist. And I feel like we need to immediately point that out. Like, it is not illegal to try and seek asylum. Like, that is an inalienable... It should be an inalienable human right. But anyway, yeah, so this whole short film competition, like the markers that the short films are like judged by is by like how much they further perpetuate the government propaganda of like anti-asylum seeker rhetoric. So some of the like criteria or like the themes that the short films should focus on were things like, you know, getting caught by border patrol or like insert every other outcome that could happen that isn't entering Australia. Like, all the ways you will fail if you try and come here by boat. 
specifically the competition gives like four themes and they want you to touch on either one or all of these themes. And the first one is stories about getting caught by people smugglers or risking your life in the rough seas. Thirdly, the effect on the lives of families slash loved ones. And lastly, issues faced after being sent back to Sri Lanka, which is where this competition is located. Yeah, so it's a competition held in Sri Lanka for Sri Lankan filmmakers to make videos about the perils Sri Lankan asylum seekers would endure if they ha- if they tried to escape and they would fail. Like the whole point is to show them all the different ways that they will fail. So this kind of only really hit the media like late December 2021, so in the last couple of months. And obviously it garnered huge outrage by the fact that our government is essentially like bribing Sri Lankan filmmakers to make free propaganda videos for them for the price of like a drone or a camera. Yeah. So it's like even without just how unethical and just like evil this shit is, it also brings in politics of... Uh, like outsourcing your own propaganda to have a country create its own propaganda for you against its own people. Well, instead of paying an advertising agency like a few thousand dollars to make you these, because three-minute videos are also like expensive. The three minutes is a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to make a three-minute short film. Yeah, and also when you submit it, it does say in the terms and conditions that the video becomes the property of, you know... The Australian Australian government. Like you are making them... Ads for free because only like one person is going to win and all the other ads are just free propaganda videos in our government's arsenal. So, yeah, outrageous already from like a worker's rights perspective. And then, you know, obviously you zoom out and it's also just fucked up to like commission videos about asylum seekers drowning in the ocean. So just, yeah, lots of outrage from the media. I wrote an article about it, which I will link below and I shared on my Instagram, which is you guys have probably seen it. But I think some of the key questions that came out after that, because once you look into that short film competition, it's part of like a bigger campaign. And the campaign is called the Zero Chance Campaign. There's a website for it. Um, and if you look at the Zero Chance Campaign, it is like a website aimed at Sri Lankans, dedicated to deterring Sri Lankan people from seeking asylum by boat in Australia. And... The campaign itself, like, has a lot of elements. Like, there's not just a short film festival. There's, like, little resources you can read. There's, like, a YouTube channel. And, weirdly, there's games. Like, Flash Player games that you would have played in, like, 2004. Yeah, and those are just the most absolutely, like, bonkers, wild thing. They have, like... It's, like, a slideshow of, like, four or five different games you can play. Like, one is, uh, you know... Uh, I think they call it like three card Monty or it's like the shell game where you see like people on the street, you know, they have the cup and there's a P under one of the cups and they shuffle. Oh yeah, they shuffle the cups. Yeah, yeah. The one that will have the P and then you win. This is one which is like three boats. One of them has, you know, getting to Australia under it. They all get shuffled around and then you have to pick the right boat. And if you select correctly, then you successfully got to Australia. But the thing about all these games is that they're completely rigged. They're made to be unbeatable. All of them have as the objective through some abstract way, getting to Australia. And then it's impossible to win these games. Just like, you know, they want to send the message. It's so weird. That you have zero chance of getting to Australia. Because it's like, how fucking stupid do they think like asylum seekers are as well? Because this is like a game that like, I feel, you know, like a, a four-year-old would play. My little yeah. sister is seven and she's too smart for this. 
like they're like you know maze games where it's like it's stuff that you would have done in like kindergarten like in your workbooks where it's like which line you know gets you from a to b and then they're all like intersecting lines and you have to yeah. pick the correct line one is like a pac-man one but instead of the little circle you're a boat trying to get to australia and then they and have then you get like eaten. Uh, yeah they have like rough seas as an obstacle and then they have and another like, one you know which is like, like an ghosts? airplane in Pac-Man that eats you instead of like a ghost it's like border patrol yeah it's like an, an, an attacked helicopter and you can't win any of these games like they're no. like they're they're not really games because you're not actually really playing I think it's more like an interactive video because it's like gonna do the same thing again and again and what you choose doesn't like yeah, make a difference it's like an anti-game which is sort of weird and interesting in a really fucked up way yeah like I feel like we could even <laughs> it's do like, like a big subversion of like the game convention but for completely evil means yeah and it's like it's not even a game already so there's like already it's already fucked it up in that regard but like it's already just not even a game yeah um but yeah just like really odd forms of like propaganda because like are you telling me an asylum seeker who was considering coming to australia is sitting here playing this game losing and then being like i guess i'm not coming here anymore like it's just bizarre yeah um i don't see how that would like make any difference the videos on the other hand are interesting because they're not like weird abstract Pac-Man games that like seemingly have no connection to an attempt to seek asylum. They're like videos that depict asylum seekers suffering. Actually, Mitch, you watched a few of them, right? I've only seen one. Yeah. So what I think was really interesting and maybe something that people don't know is that, like you said, it was recently, as in the past couple months, that this short film competition, I think, really came to light. And we were talking about it a lot in the media. I mean, you just wrote your article about it. Like, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But looking into this, and it wasn't apparent at first, this has actually been going on, this competition and this form and this campaign, for since 2019 now. So, there's already been two years of short film competitions with winners, which are viewable on their YouTube channel. Yeah, there's, like, actually dozens of videos in the YouTube channel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they've been posting videos since January 1st, 2020. Uh, most of them not in English, so I wasn't able to to view them. But they'd have the same video reposted like 20 times in 20 different languages. And I watched a few of the the short films, the ones that the top three uh, winners for the 2021 competition. And they were really interesting. And some of them were like, you know, sort of well-made. Some of them yeah, maybe not so Yeah, because these are filmmakers or like up-and-coming filmmakers or budding filmmakers. And... The two, uh, the second and first place winners, which I thought were the most interesting and strangely alike, all centered on that sort of third dot point of, you know, what the themes they want you to touch on in the competition, which is the strain on your family and loved ones. And they both center on a small boy, a child of parents who are trying to seek asylum in Australia. So in the, the first place winner, it was about this kid who his dad went away on, you know, with from people smugglers trying to get to Australia, and then he finds out, or then the mom finds out that he passed away because of the rough seas, and those that didn't pass away on the boat were arrested by the Australian border force. And then it's just about, you know, this kid growing up without a father and the turmoil on this family. And the second place winner was very similar as well. It was about a boy with a single mother going away trying to, you know, find work and, and Yeah, you know, she's trying to provide for the family. Yeah, in Australia, because, you know, there's apparently nothing for them at home. She goes away 
dies on the boat and then his grandmother who's taking care of him dies so now you just have this now he's just orphaned an orphaned kid, kid yeah which is like the funniest thing about these videos is that i feel like you watch them and then suddenly i'm like pro-refugee <laughs> i was gonna say like the really interesting thing is like i'm not seeing this as anti-asylum seeker yeah. like propaganda if anything it's garnering like empathy for this family because you're watching them cry and suffer and you're like oh my god we need to help these people but like I mean I guess we're not the target audience other Sri Lankan people I mean I don't look I don't think that these videos are effective in propaganda and in fact I'll link an article below that shows that like it's debatable what is and isn't effective in terms of like Australian propaganda there has been a significant decrease in recent years from people trying to arrive by boat but I don't think it's these fucking YouTube videos that are the reason for that I think it's because we literally just don't let them in and what I thought was really funny as well was maybe not funny, but you know, just, darkly comedic. This is just all like such silly and a bit of a farce. Uh, was almost like they have the presentation where they announce the three winners. It's like a YouTube video on the Zero Chances channel, and they have like Mark Hill, who I think is some chief in the Border Patrol force. I forget specifically, but you know, he's in his army uniform and is saying. Like, we're going to, you know, celebrate these directors today who are, you know, saving lives, essentially, you know. Like, who knows, like, the people that are going to see this video. They're going to influence all these people to not ruin their lives by seeking asylum. But then they show, like, the clips that these winners sent in, you know, regarding the Like, accepting the award. And it's clear that these people have no interest in creating propaganda. They just wanted an excuse to make a short film. And they, like, wanted to, like, potentially get a new camera. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're not, you know, passionate about, you know, protecting their people from the the ills that will Yeah, they didn't give a fuck about this, like, propaganda. No, one dude was just talking about how, you know, film used to be something that was so restricted to Hollywood and these big productions, but now with our smartphones, we can make these pictures and we can tell interesting stories. They don't give a fuck about I just love the disconnect there. Yeah, well, um, actually, in the article that I wrote, like, there's a few quotes in there by, like, experts regarding this issue, including a professor who was Sri Lankan, and she talks about the fact that these, these, like, short film competitions actually get quite a lot of entrance. Like, they get fucking heaps of entrance but she's like that's not them like betraying their people like they don't give a fuck this is like a random like government council short film festival like it's not con like it's just literally like a local government thing that they just like oh yeah like it's easy yeah. money like i'll just make a video of some kid fucking crying yeah, like and a, then, like, i'm a cinephile and i you know need an excuse to make a movie and i get a free camera maybe yeah like and she was saying that i mean look the government is actively exploiting like these people's desires for like success in the film industry for like better resources like cameras and whatever and they're like yeah i am struggling to make it or like i don't have the money to afford this or you know whatever i need some form of assistance in my film career and this looks like an easy way to get it so i guess i'll just enter this australian government film competition but, like, even then, like, cause I know there is some criticism of the people that, like, enter these competitions, but I just have no interest in that. Because the real question is, who the fuck is holding these competitions? Because if you, like, go on the website, like, they've obviously, the government didn't make the website. Like, they have paid someone to do it. Like, there is a company involved in running the Zero Chance campaign and creating the other uh, government. The government doesn't make their own ads. Like, the ad agencies do that. So my question is, who the fuck are they employing to make these ads? Because that is the person who, like, well, not person, I guess, organization that is being like incredibly unethical. Who actually makes these ads? 
Well, that's actually really interesting because I saw in an SBS article that it was revealed recently through a freedom of information request regarding documents regarding uh, this campaign that an international ad agency called TBWA was behind the Zero Chances campaign. And, you know, that's just sort of an innocuous fact. But what's actually really interesting is that this sort of multinational company in the past has received plenty of awards regarding their really ethical behavior. (laughs) Awards for social responsibility. Yes. Even though, like, they literally create anti-Sri Lankan asylum seeker ads for the Australian government. And apparently, like, their vision statement claims that it's, quote, Vision for diversity, equity, and inclusion means relentlessly assessing, disrupting, and addressing inequities for marginalized communities to achieve equitable and actionable outcomes. Oh my god. Like, I know this episode is about refugees, but this is just an an another, like, I could do a whole another episode on just these fucking empty, like company like mantras that are like we support diversity we support marginalized community like every company can fucking say that and then this one actually like makes anti-asylum seeker propaganda like they actively make videos for the australian government that show like sri lankans like fucking drowning like yeah like this but they, but they just love so empty. diversity they love diversity like diversity and what in like the amount of people the government fucks over like what is this and what i think may be even worse than that was in 2018 tbwa the ad agency ran a campaign for Amnesty International titled, quote, Through the Eyes of a Refugee, where five people were put under hypnosis to experience the journey of a Syrian refugee. Amnesty International, like, regularly critiques the Australian government for its treatment of refugees. Like, Amnesty International is pro-refugee. It just goes to show how fucking, like, there's just no moral backbone to, like, any of these capitalist corporations because they'll do what, like, they can make money from. Oh, the government will pay us to make anti-asylum seeker ads? Sure. Oh, Amnesty International will pay us to make a pro-refugee ad? Sure. Like, we'll just do... We'll just go wherever the money goes, well, I mean, that's why advertising, I feel, is just the it's most fucking soulless Fucking soulless. Thing. I mean, I have very strong feelings from people that work in sales, so... Yeah. Yeah, there is this whole, like, other world of Australian propaganda that, like, is outsourced and is shown overseas. In researching this stuff... I then, like, literally just Googled Australian government anti-asylum seeker propaganda. Like, that's I just Googled that. <laughs> and all these articles came up from, like, 2014, 2015 of an ad campaign by the Australian government called They Will Not Make Australia Home, which was meant to be a play on We All Call Australia Home, like the song, but this is, like, the evil version of that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, I just find it funny how, like, the how evil much... evil version. Well, you just have to lack so much awareness to think it was a good idea to make the evil version of this song and, like, yeah. the, and like think well, you did something there. The Australian anthem is already the evil version. But it's, like, you know, the, the whole thing is, like, you know, we still call Australia home. Like, that's, like, supposed to be heartwarming. And they, like, did the opposite of that and thought that was good. I don't know. Yeah. Look, I can't pretend to understand these people's brains. Yeah, so the Australian government has a long history of outsourcing... Not just outsourcing propaganda videos, but like actively having ads like that deter or try to deter asylum seekers in countries that aren't Australia. So Sri Lanka is just like the tip of the iceberg here. So the They Will Not Make Australia Home campaign involves quite a few little elements. Just to give like some background, it was created during the Abbott government but unsurprisingly who is involved scott morrison our fave marketing man 
uh, was actually the immigration minister at the time these campaigns were made and he was the one that signed off and approved them, which I just find really interesting because they will not make Australia home. The campaign is really similar to the Zero Chance campaign now. And they're like, you know, nearly 10 years apart. But like their imagery and the words even that they use are really similar. And it is so a part of me was like, fuck, I have worked in media for too long already. If I can look at that and know Scott Morrison made it like I already knew I didn't even need to read that. I was just like, this reminds me of Scott Morrison. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, of course he was the mastermind behind it. Okay, so these campaigns. So majority of them were based in YouTube ads. So, you know, you like you watch a YouTube video, there's that like there's two ads before you start a video. And I'll link an article below that's actually like a surprisingly comprehensive kind of list of ways the Australian government has put out anti-asylum seeker propaganda. But one of the things it talks about is the story of a 17-year-old refugee who escaped Afghanistan, is currently in Indonesia and is trying to get to Australia to seek asylum. And every time he is missing home, he searches on YouTube like a song from home, like an Afghani song that he loves. And every time he goes to search up that song, he gets the same ad before he watches it, which is part of the They Will Not Make Australia Home ad. And he is in Indonesia, like he's not in Australia but he always gets like that ad targeted towards Afghanis because that ad's target demographic is people who speak this language but are in Indonesia wow. because it understands the algorithm or like whatever, understands that people who speak this language and are in Indonesia are typically in transit to come to Australia. This is the path that refugees take. So wow. it's targeted both geographically and linguistically to his very specific demographic and then the video is like this big army man with his arms crossed being like don't try and come to Australia you know this is not your home this will never be your home we will turn you back blah 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 just a typical like that's stuff. actually just incredibly fascinating like this just leads to a whole conversation about surveillance capitalism how all these sort of parameters and data on you can know so much about you. Yeah, like it knew he was an asylum seeker because yeah. he speaks this language but is in this locale, like it knew. And you were telling me like before about how certain ads would specifically target individuals in war zones? Yes. So there was a type of ad that consistently appeared for people in Afghanistan, Iran and Iraq. There was, um, it's in the article, so you guys can link it, but there was like a tweet from some guy who was like, every time I'm in Iraq and I scroll news articles, this is not even a YouTube ad, this is like, the ads in, just like those random like Google ad squares. Sure. Every time he scrolls through in Iraq, he gets the anti-asylum seeker ads. Yeah. Like they are targeted to countries where we historically have had asylum seekers come from. Which? Which are active war zones, like the Middle East, obviously. Which I find so interesting because I think when someone sort of thinks about online advertising and how sort of sophisticated these algorithms have come, because typically if a company wants to advertise, they have their ad and then they also put into like Google AdSense or whatever the Facebook marketplace is for ads, specifically who they want to target, like what sort of people they want to target, uh, where, what location. So it's like, oh, white women in their 30s who are in this place in Australia. And have cats but, uh, or and something. Have, yeah, exactly. Something really specific and random. And it does get far more sophisticated than that, but we won't get into it now. But I find that so interesting how you can like target like just sort of this evil shit, which is like, oh, I want to target people in war zones i want to target is it like an option for people trying to seek asylum in yeah. like the facebook ad yeah send this ad to people who may be persecuted by war yeah but you know what's so like 
funny is that if the ad can reach them and recognize that they are an asylum seeker, doesn't that legitimize them seeking asylum? Sure. Because like right. a lot if- of this propaganda <laughs> argues that you're not like, I mean, the Australian propaganda to its citizens argues that these people are lying. They're not asylum seekers. They're coming here as terrorists. But like if your algorithm is so yeah. good, which it is, then by identifying them as asylum seekers, you've already validated them seeking yeah, asylum. No, I see just- what you're saying. If the algorithm can recognize the situation, then why can't the Australian government? Literally. Like yeah. it's, I, it, oh my God. Um, but yeah, so the YouTube, there's YouTube ads, there's like Google ads. There's actually billboards, which I was quite shocked to see like images of. There's actually billboards in multiple countries around the world that have, it's really big. It's like, a, it's, it, it depicts like a small boat getting like swallowed by the ocean. Like this really like wild storm Again, scene. A consistent theme yeah like how you just- know you're just this tiny boat in this massive angry ocean yeah. and then there's like really big red block letters that say you will not make australia your home anyone who comes here without a valid visa will be turned away you will be arrested you will not be resettled don't do it and interestingly like none of these billboards offer like alternative means or tell you what the correct way to come to Australia is correct quote unquote because like we accept a lot of refugees that come here by plane with a visa if you come by boat you're turned away but if you come with all your you know correct papers all the bureaucratic nonsense and you come by plane then the Australian government will see you as like doing the right thing and you have a valid claim to asylum but these like billboards and these ads like do not give you an alternative which is why some would argue they like aren't even useful because they don't really take in the situation at all if you're going to tell them like don't come here you will die and they're like well i'm either going to die now or i'm going to die in a month it's like we already know that like you know what this risk to come into australia is in this fashion but it's that there's literally no other option yeah and that just which is why like i mean that's why these are such inhumane ads it's why they use us it's obviously like a key part of why we oppose any of this fashy nonsense is because it implies that people are choosing to get on a boat and come here as if it's like they could be at home with their loved ones but they've decided to get on a boat as if that's like some people do for fucking fun yeah it's like uh, other sort of discourse i see around it is how like they're portrayed as like cheaters you know there's these honest people trying to do it the legitimate way and these people who are trying to cheat the system which i feel like like builds in with this un-Australian rhetoric. Yes. Okay. So I was reading about the history of like accepting asylum seekers because Australia actually accepted a lot of asylum seekers. Um, in like 1975, after the Communist Party took over Vietnam, there were a lot of Vietnamese refugees that were like quite. I'm not going to say welcomed because they weren't welcomed by the Australian like public who were obviously all incredibly racist and all this white flight hysteria. But like the government like put in quite a bit of resources to resettling refugees, probably because their hatred for communism was stronger than their hatred of Asian people. So they were like, okay, I guess we'll help you because we hate communists. But like as the time has gone on, the government has become more conservative regarding refugees. It was actually the Keating and then Howard prime ministerships, especially Howard, that really pushed the idea of like they're like getting special treatment if they come here. And we don't think that refugees should get special treatment. They were, that's when like the real Aussie battler kind of stuff had to come out. Where like everyday people in Australia, these working families, they struggle. They have to earn their way and then these refugees get to come in here and like have everything handed to them on a silver platter. Like that's kind of where that rhetoric started to appear. Actually, fucking Julia Gillard, I was reading about just like, because I was reading about offshore detention, right? Which like became popular in kind of like 2008-ish time. Like Kevin Rudd 
Uh, so like Howard introduced offshore detention and then Kevin Rudd kind of tried to stop it. And then Julia Gillard became a proponent for offshore detention and suggested East Timor. I was just reading about kind of all the back and forth politics regarding offshore detention. And Julia Gillard like literally was saying that like we should open up offshore detention and that the Australian, she says fear of asylum seekers, fear as if it's fear and not fucking racism, uh, is legitimate. And she's like, they shouldn't get special treatment. Like we shouldn't give asylum seekers special treatment. That's Julia Gillard. That's your feminist queen. (laughs) I mean, Every, I feel like at this point, y'all know how I fucking feel about Julia Gillard and how much all these white feminists are just obsessed with her when she is a raging racist. Like, she's a fascist. Um, she, you know, advocated for all these asylum seekers to just be shipped off to ECMO. Like, she is an evil person. But anyway, these ideas of asylum seekers are, like, somewhat recent. Recent as in, like, the mid to late 90s till, like, now. It's become so venomous. But... We were actually more welcoming, in a way, to refugees before. But just like before we move into that, I actually just want to mention one more part of the campaign that we were just talking about, the one that Scott Morrison was involved in, They Will Not Make Australia Home campaign. There was also a graphic novel. And like I can't find the whole graphic novel, but The Guardian has a screenshot of it. So I'll link their 2014 article because they're the ones who talk about it. And this is kind of going to be a big loop around. So the graphic novel that is meant to be propaganda that deters asylum seekers from coming here depicts Afghani refugees in offshore detention centers suffering from depression and a lack of medical assistance and like torture like they literally made a graphic novel about the torture they subject refugees to in offshore detention and then used it as their ad. And this is what I was saying in the beginning of the podcast episode where they don't care if we expose the torture that they subject refugees to because that just adds to their deterrence campaign. They're like, yeah, tell them how we torture refugees. Then they won't come here. Yeah, exactly. It's like they could just play our podcast right now and it would do an equally sort of effective job at deterrence because we're talking about how awful the Australian government is and how awful they treat yeah. you know, people trying to seek asylum because it doesn't matter like which side you're talking about these horrors from. They're still horrors that exist. And their horror is profitable for the Australian government because their objective is not about like liberation. It's not even about money. They spend fucking millions of dollars on these shitty campaigns that I could make you know, in five minutes in, like, word. Like, they spend millions of dollars on these anti-asylum seeker ads because the objective actually isn't even necessarily profit. It's just white supremacy. Like, it's just racism and wanting to, like, torture these people. And it's, like, frustrating because then we're in this position where we're, like, we're doing this to educate you, but not because we think it's a form of activism because it actually isn't. Like, we're not exposing the Australian government's torture of refugees isn't even really a form of, like, anarchy or anti-state behaviour because they actively benefit from any, like, torture that they subject and, like, talking about it too. It just reminds everybody how strong their stance is against asylum seekers because that's how they see it. They see that as a strength. They see the harm that they're perpetuating against asylum seekers as a strength. And that's really important to understand when we, like, try and fight the way asylum seekers are being treated right now because I think part of the reason because we, we might ask like why are they still being tortured how are asylum seekers still like experiencing these things how are we allowing this to happen and it's like because we're focusing on the wrong thing here like exposing the stories while it's obviously important in the sense that yes we want to uplift refugees and have their voices in the media but that's not where our activism like ends in fact it's not even where it starts 
because that like has zero impact on the government. Like they're, they're, the government's already, you know, exposing this. Th- yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like we're, by doing that, we just show them and their supporters how strong they are. We just reinforce that the government is strong in their stance against asylum seekers. Like it's not the right approach. We should still obviously interview refugees and write their stories and stuff, but we shouldn't pretend that that's going to change anything. Even more than that, I think the, the next step that people go to is like, okay, well, then we got to vote out the Liberal Party or we got to vote out Scott Morrison and that'll free the refugees. And it's like, this has been happening long before Scott Morrison. He just he just loves it. Like, he just fucking froths the anti-assignment seeker. Like, that's his favorite job. But, like, he, it, was, it existed before him and it'll exist after him. And it existed before Liberals were in power as well. Like, Julia Gillard was pro-offshore detention. Like, Labour and Liberal, like, both parties are actually united on this issue. Both of them are pretty happy to treat refugees the way they are treating refugees. So voting out Scott Morrison is not going to free refugees and voting in Labour is not really going to free refugees either. Like it's not a Labour versus Liberal issue. They're both guilty. They're both complicit and they're both happy to be there. And I think, you know, when we're talking about all these fucking billboards in like Pakistan and we're talking about this like massive ad campaign with this huge global ad agency and we're talking about these short film festivals is to show you just like this is so much bigger than you think it is. There are so many more cogs in this machine than you realize. There is like an entire like underworld of people hinging on this existing as an issue because then these companies make money from it. Like for them, it's, you know, in their interest to maintain refugees because then they get paid to make this content. Like it's actually so big. And I think this is a huge reminder to us not to get lost in like liberal labor politics because it actually has nothing to do with who is in government. Both of our major parties like are pro this. This is when we have to think about like change bigger than who we vote for. Yeah. This is when we think about change you create that doesn't fucking include your vote because that shit is actually useless for refugees. I think we need to really think about the way we actually need to tear down like establishments. Like it's not about voting. Fucking forget like the polite way of partaking in this like false democracy because it isn't one. Most people don't want other people tortured. So let's have like bigger thoughts. And I know that's like going to be frustrating to hear because people want like a tangible way to free the refugees. And it's like, well, you know what? Like, I have 8,000 followers on Instagram. What if we all just, like, showed up at Park Hotel <laughs> and, like, stormed it? Yeah, I was just going to say, we shouldn't be asking who should we vote in. We should be asking how thick can those walls at Melbourne Park Hotel possibly be. Yeah, like, <laughs> literally, I just How wish- heavy duty could it possibly? It's a well, hotel. There is, like, a history of, like, socialists, like, breaking into detention centres and, like, physically freeing refugees, which is part of the reason they kind of- offshore them as well because when they were in Australia it was easier to free them yeah like I just really wish people thought about that and like we weren't I like I get why we don't I get that people are obviously afraid of being arrested and Australian police powers are fucking terrifying but I just like that's where your thinking needs to go it's about moving your thoughts to more tangible outcomes to stop relying on like politicians to do things for us and to just like take our lives into our own hands and our politics into our own hands like we should be thinking not how will Labour do this for us. We should think, how should we do this? Like, we have the people power. Like, that's what our anti-capitalist podcasts are about. We're so alienated 
from our own personal stake in things. But like we actually do have this, like, there's not a lot aside from like concepts stopping us from just showing up to these places and freeing these people ourselves. Like what if we held a strike and like 30,000 people just occupied the city and refused to move and refused to like let transport in and out or anything until those refugees were freed? Yeah, like mean, what if? Yeah, exactly. Just like conceptually, like we got to think about demonstrations. We got to think about like actually freeing refugees, not just like talking about how we want to get labor to maybe care because they don't care and they never will care. And we have to do that ourselves. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode. You, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Seo Carcano, Liz and Katie. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me on Instagram, you can DM Mitch on Instagram, and you can also email the both of us at here's a thing podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Bye. Bye.